right, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today is Chris Webb. Um, Chris is the CEO of a company called Chow Now, which in some ways is almost the antithesis of DoorDash and Uber Eats and all of that. And, and, and given how those companies have been portrayed during the pandemic, really wanted to try to get the other point of view out there. So Chris, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, so was it accurate for me to say that in some ways you're at the antithesis of DoorDash? We are, um, and, and even more so kind of Grubhub and, and others out there. Uh, we, we started the business about a decade ago, and, and back then the, the only kind of major player at the time was Grubhub, and we had just consistently heard from restaurants how much they disliked working with Grubhub and they wished they didn't have to work with Grubhub, and, and they wanted an alternative, and we decided to, to create that alternative. And so if you are, I mean, I, I think everyone listening to this podcast is obviously really familiar with services like Grubhub or DoorDash or whatever, but... Um, you're a restaurant, right? Walk me through what happens when they work with you compared to what happens when they work with a, a Grubhub or a DoorDash. Sure, sure. So when they work with us, they work with a company that believes that just because a diner orders online doesn't mean that the restaurant should lose that connection with the diner. We believe it's our responsibility to help strengthen the relationship that restaurants have with their customer base, with their diners. Uh, and so everything we do is is based off of that, that principle, that tenant. Uh, when when a restaurant works with Grubhub or any of the other platforms out there, they lose that direct connection. And so what happens when they lose that direct connection and ownership of the customer and they don't get all the customer data is it, it, it provides Grubhub and others the leverage to then start charging the restaurant higher and higher commissions to access that customer over time. We at Channel don't charge any commissions or fees. Uh, and so that's better for the restaurants. Uh, you, you know, it's been pretty widely reported at this point that, that restaurants that use Uber Eats, Grubhub, et cetera, have to pay 30 to 40% on every single order. Uh, and so not only is that bad for the restaurant, but what that actually does in turn is that then causes the restaurants to raise their menu prices on those platforms. So the diner ends up spending more money. So, so it's not a great option for either the diner or the restaurants. And, and so we take a very different approach at Chenow. So if you guys aren't taking commissions or fees, how do you make money? We charge a flat monthly fee. We think it's the fairest thing to do. It, it starts about $99 a month per restaurant. Uh, we, we think about if, if Verizon or any of the other phone systems start telling restaurants, hey, anytime you receive a phone order, we're gonna take 30% of that phone order, restaurants would have stopped taking it, taking those phone orders many, many years ago. Uh, and so the phone systems charge a, a monthly fee for the software uh, or for the phone line. Uh, and so we take the exact same approach. It's a flat monthly fee, regardless of, of how many orders the, the restaurant receives. Um, so right now, if, 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 I'm, if, if I were to go to a website's uh, a restaurant's website and order from that, pretty good chance they're being powered by you guys? Is a, yeah, there's a good chance that we powered that experience. And uh, if, if given everything that restaurants went through in the pandemic, kind of what's their path back, both through, you know, customer behavior now around delivery and, and even beyond that, given that they're your partners and your customers, um, what does the world look like once we're at, you know, some version of herd immunity and, you know, better weather? Yeah, I, I, I think it looks like it did 18 months ago. Um, I think, you know, people are always asking for predictions of, of where this, where's the restaurant industry going? What are restaurants going to look like in five years or 10 years? And, and, you know, they evolve, they change. But at the same time, some of the oldest existing restaurants in the world have been around for five or 600 years. And they operate the same way they did five or 600 years ago, regardless of the pandemics and the wars and, the, and, and everything else that has changed over the, the centuries. 
And so there's something very human about restaurants, the people going out, spending time, uh, spending time with friends and family and, and ha feeling that kind of that mini vacation for 90 minutes of their day. And, and I think that's what people desire right now is to get out and go back to restaurants. And again, it's, it's, it's I don't think it's going to be all that different than it was in 2019 or, or before then. So I think that's kind of what the, the short term looks like. Is that a problem for you? Because then people will be ordering online less or given that you charge sort of a flat monthly fee, you're not going to lose the restaurants you have. So it doesn't really matter. No, I, th I think it's going to be actually pretty good for us. Um, what what restaurants will get is they'll get more leverage in the conversation with online ordering companies. So in the past year, because everything has moved to takeout, everything has moved online, restaurants rush to every platform saying, I need every dollar I can get in revenue. Regardless, and, and even if not all uh, all platforms are created equal, even if Chanow is, is a much better platform for my restaurant, I need every dollar I can get. So I'm gonna sign up for Grubhub, Uber Eats, et cetera. As, as their revenue source returns and dine-in becomes a bigger and bigger piece of their, their revenue as it has historically been, it'll give restaurants leverage again to go and say, well, now I don't wanna work with people I don't wanna work with. And so I think that what we'll see over the next six months are restaurants starting to drop Grubhub and others not all in mass, but I think we'll start to see that happen. And so if there are five different channels that order at a restaurant, so Chanow is one of them, Grubhub's another, and you kind of list the other kind of big companies out there, that that those channels probably get kind of paired back to two, of which I think Chanow will be one of them because we're the best option for restaurants. So, so there may be uh, less orders coming in from diners because people are now out and about, they're traveling, they're going into restaurants to eat but there's also less channels to order at a restaurant. So I think that benefits Chen out at the same time. So what's the sales process like when you talk to a restaurant? Do they say, we can't afford not to be on, you know, Grubhub or DoorDash, wherever it is, so why do I have to pay you an extra 1200 bucks a year? Or ha what makes them believe that they can recoup that 15% by getting their customers to use their website directly? Yeah, so, so most of the conversations are, how can you help me ditch Grubhub? That, that, that's a lot of it. Uh, and, and so we have a whole playbook around that, um, how we can help convert their customers off of Grubhub and off of Seamless onto, onto their own platform that we build for them. Uh, and so that's a lot of that kind of those first conversations with restaurants. Uh, and then, then hopefully they sign up and then we show them how, actually how they do that. And, uh, and, and we're seeing that happen every single day. Uh, so that's usually what restaurants come to us for is help them convert their customers off of their own platform and kind of extend their brand and their front of house online properly. Do, do you believe in the business model uh, of food delivery for the platforms or do you think that it's, it's kind of a false hope and in a non-COVID environment, it, it's not necessarily that profitable with business? There are a lot of variables that go into it. Yep. Um, people, delivery's got a lot of attention um, over the last year because of COVID, because everything's being delivered, right? And, and everything's being bought online. Um, but what, what has often been forgotten is that takeout and pickup is, is actually a very big piece as well. And so what we've actually seen the most growth on our platform over the past year is not delivery, it's actually been curbside pickup, where people order online, they put their car info, they pull up to the restaurant's location, and the food's brought out to them, and then they get back on the road and, and drive wherever they're headed, usually home. Uh, and so I suspect that is the most sustainable and the best path forward. And I, I, I think that will continue to grow post COVID because it's just so convenient, so easy for both the restaurant and for the diner. In terms of the question around sustainability, I think it has to get more expensive. Uh, restaurants can't give up more 
more and more of their revenue to these platforms, right? They're already giving up 30, 40%. It's already painful given the margins of the industry. So that just means the diner is going to have to pay more. And it'll be very interesting to see kind of what is a diner willing to pay to have the food delivered to their house. Um, it's also kind of over, often overlooked that, that restaurants still do their own delivery. Um, it's a job I did in high school for a local deli was, was deliver food. Uh, most of our restaurants actually still fulfill their own deliveries, even though Uber and others have got a ton of attention um, and, and have very large platforms themselves with a lot of couriers on them. There's a lot of restaurants out there that, that it makes sense for them to still have their own staff dropping off food at, at their customers' houses. And, and we see a lot of that. Yeah. So, so were you were not that surprised by Deliveroo's, you know, IPO in London kind of being weak and disappointing? No, no, I wasn't. So, so if if investors at least over there are already expressing skepticism, and if you're right in that people will, I may think it's almost axiomatic that people will obviously go out to eat a lot more because they can, right? And why, why wouldn't you? But also more, more pickup um, and takeout and all of that. Then, then. What happens to these companies? I mean, so they, they've got to raise their price, which, you know, presumably means the network effect starts to fall off because uh, fewer and fewer restaurants want to pay that price. I mean, are you like shorting DoorDash? Do you just think? <laughs> no, I mean, so, so to be fair, DoorDash is the best exe- uh, best company of the lot from actually executing. You know, they, they've they've gone from the spot where they're number three or four in a short amount of time to number one. Uh, Grubhub is the opposite. They've gone from number one to number three uh, and, and probably are, are not executing all that well in comparison to the, the competition out there. They're all well-funded. They all have billions of dollars. But if you take a step back and you say, okay, wh- who's actually benefiting here? The restaurant is out 30 or 40% of their revenue anytime an order is placed on there. The diner has to spend 10, 20, 30% more in many cases to order off those platforms. And all these platforms are losing money you know, DoorDash, Uber, et cetera, who is actually benefiting? Who is this actually good for at the end of the day? Uh, and so something will have to change. And, and you know, companies can't lose money forever. I think that's kind of the, the Deliveroo kind of stock is, is responding to that. So, so I think something has to change. You can't, this, this, can't, this isn't sustainable in the current setup. Yeah. So switching topics a little bit, you know the restaurant world really well, obviously. Uh, and probably know it really well, uh, at least across the entire United States. Kind of want to, you know, tap into that knowledge of you as, as restaurant experts. Um, what what cities would you say have the most underrated food and restaurants? Kansas City, uh, and, and and I've spent more time in Kansas City because we a couple of years ago we opened an office there. Um, it was it's our only office outside of LA, and going into it i was like a lot of people that think about kansas city it's it's a city of just barbecue it's, it's what people think of kansas city Arthur Bryan's, right? yeah, yeah exactly it, it totally and and so then we we went out and a small team of us i think five of us flew out spent a few days in kansas city and we we're blown away at the the restaurant scene there and how how far beyond barbecue the city goes and how many amazing chefs have moved from chicago new york and other cities to to uh to kansas city so I have to put Kansas City as kind of probably one of the most underrated cities out there for food. Where, what city do you go to? And there everyone's like, our food's amazing here. And you're like, eh, it's okay. San Francisco, maybe. Uh-huh. I, yeah. I yeah. 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 <laughs> so how would you, uh, the other day I was, and I, by the way, I'm, I'm a true New Yorker, but I guess I'm not in the sense that I actually like Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> and I was making the case of someone that LA's food scene is like, maybe in some ways more exciting than, than New York's. Obviously, in the last year and change has been a watch for everybody, but 
um, and they thought I was crazy. Um, you live in LA, but obviously I'm sure you do a lot of business in New York. How would you compare the two? Yeah, th they've gotten a lot closer. Um, there, you know, it's, it's been widely reported that the, just a ton of chefs from New York have moved out here and opened up uh, restaurants. I think probably David Chang is probably one of the most famous, if not the most famous chef, but he's not alone. There, there are a lot of other chefs that have moved out here. And, and what they'll all tell you is they're blown away at how great the produce is and how fresh everything is. Um, and, you know, that's one of the advantages that California has, given the climate and the weather here. And so chefs and these really great chefs have access to a lot of great food and produce and ingredients to make it. So, so I agree. I grew up in L.A. And growing up in L.A., even at a young age, L.A. was known as not having very good food. Uh, you know, kind of the, the, the go-to well-known restaurant chef was Wolfgang Puck. And not to take anything away from him, but that was basically all there was, was like Wolfgang Puck is, is the amazing chef and Spago is the amazing restaurant. And that, that was kind of it in the you know, 80s and 90s. And, um, and then I, I moved to New York. I lived in New York for most of the 2000s and kind of most of my 20s. And, and I fell in love with the food there and I got you know, exposure to just how these amazing restaurants and kind of the diversity of food throughout New York. And, and while I was there, things in L LA started to come up a little bit. And when I moved back, LA has really transformed. And again, you've heard this from, from other people. I credit Lyft a lot with that, Lyft and Uber, because the ability to get around LA and try and go to different neighborhoods has grown. I didn't have that when I was younger. It was, you always had to get in a car. No one took a taxi. I mean, that just wasn't, you know, they were available, but calling up the taxi line and waiting 30 minutes to get a taxi and then spending a hundred bucks to get across town, another hundred bucks to get, to get back home. It just was not reasonable, just not what anyone did. And so, so you would have to drive. And if you really want to have a good night and have a couple of drinks and things like that, it just, it just never happened. It rarely happened. Um, Lyft and Uber opened up the city and it allowed people to start to explore. And I live on the West side. I, I've spent the last 10 years in Venice, but I started going to Koreatown and started going downtown, going to these other neighborhoods. I just wouldn't spend any time at, not because I didn't appreciate it or want to spend time. It's just, it was kind of a pain to get to. And so that allowed chefs and restaurants to open up all over the city. Uh, and, and that has also kind of helped the city over the past decade blossom. I'm going to name a, a cuisine and you tell me what cities you think you like, you want to eat that food in. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Vietnamese food. LA is very good. I, yeah. What comes to mind is there's a place in Austin and I'm blanking on the name that I'd love for me, Vietnamese. Um, again, I haven't been to Austin in a few years, but I, I was there for three days and I ate the city at this restaurant twice. Uh, last time I was in Austin, I'm blanking on the name. Um, so I don't know if it's the best city, Austin, but there's a restaurant, a Vietnamese restaurant in Austin that I, I happen to love. K Korean food, are you just going to say LA all the way? LA, I, th I think well, LA is a given. New yeah. York, give them a run or not? <laughs> I don't know. I, LA is kind of a give me, I think. You know, New York may be great as well, but it's just, it's hard to compete with LA Korean food. F fair enough. Mexican food. Yeah, that's also a tough one. I did see that speaking of Kansas City, uh, I, I haven't tried much Mexican in Kansas City, but there's some articles saying that the, the best tacos are now in Kansas City. Uh, there's it's a fairly large Mexican community yeah. in, in in Kansas City, uh, so so actually it's not all that surprising. I just haven't been exposed to it myself firsthand. Yeah, Southern California and LA is pretty great. Um, yeah, I would yeah. I would throw in Chicago too for the same reason, which is I think there's like a million yes. people of Mexican you know descent. Or yeah. In in Chicago, yeah, I lived there for seven years, and the Mexican food there was amazing. Whereas in New York, you know, we have some really good fancy Mexican restaurants, and they're very good. But you know, you're, if the choice is I'll grab a taco or a slice of pizza, you know the slice of pizza is going to be fantastic, right? Yes. The taco might be good, it might not be good. 
Um, yeah. And so yeah. to, uh, I, I just spent the last six weeks in, in McAllen, Texas, um, a family down there. And it's, it's, it's on the border of, of Mexico. It's, yep. it's, it's kind of as far south in, in Texas as you can go. And I think we're five miles away from Mexico. Very different type of Mexican food. It's definitely Tex more Tex-Mex than kind of yep. truly authentic Mexican. Uh, but it was, it was pretty damn great as well. So the Texas would say they have the best barbecue and kind of the southeast of the U.S. would say they have the best barbecue. And then Kansas City would say they have the best barbecue. <laughs> um, how, how would you sort of referee this fight? Yeah, it's we have someone on our team. She's she's we've worked with her for six years. She happens to live in Chicago, but she's from Kansas City. Uh, and without a doubt, she says Kansas City, not even close. And she's offended if you say anything else. <laughs> and I was, I was on a conference call with her a couple of weeks ago when I was in Texas and someone said, oh, Texas, you're probably eating great barbecue. And I, I was and she was on it and her face just kind of. You could just tell she was not happy about that comment about yeah, Texas no, she, having great barbecue. I, I, I just spent the past 10 days in Austin and ate at City Market and Luling and Ironworks, you know, in downtown Austin. Like, I mean, I've never been to Kansas City, so so maybe it is much better, but it's hard to imagine something being materially better than that. I, I, I agree. Uh, when I moved back to L.A., and this is over 10 years ago, I wrote a, a road trip from New York and I took the southern route. So I went all the way down the East Coast and then basically in Georgia kind of started going west and kind of went through Tennessee and other. And so I ate a ton of barbecue and a ton of different type of barbecue. It's hard to say anything's better. It's, it's, it's done obviously very differently and it's, it's, they're all so great. I could eat it every single day. It's yeah. yeah. That, that's the hard part. Yeah. Uh, best sushi. LA. Fair enough. Uh, best Chinese food. Th th though I was blown away. Uh, there's a, a restaurant in Boston called, Oh yeah which I ate at a, a while ago and I was blown away at how good it was. It, I, it was, um, I know that place cause they have, they also have one in, in, New, in York. New York. I've been to the one in New York as yeah. well. Um, it, which is also good. The one in Boston I think is, is slightly better. It's the original. And I think they only have two if, unless I think COVID changed things. Um, it, that was great, but, but it, it's, it's kind of different sushi, just broadly speaking sushi. Uh, I'd say LA. Yeah, it's fair enough. Chinese. You know, I don't eat a lot of Chinese food. Um, not so LA. it's not, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think as a New Yorker, I'm going to claim that one. I think that's fair. I wouldn't argue it, but I just, I, yeah, I'm not an expert on, on Chinese food. Italian food. Uh, again, I'm going to probably New York. Yeah. Claim yeah. New York uh, on that. And then are you guys operating in the outside the U.S. or, or just in the U.S. So far? We're in Canada as well. Okay. Um, we don't have a huge client base. We probably have a, maybe a thousand restaurants in Canada, in and around Canada. Um, but the, the bulk of our client base is in, a, in the U.S. Well, by the way, if speaking of food cities, Montreal is up there with anybody, right? Yes. Yeah, but I haven't been personally. I've only heard from uh, others. It's so I, yeah. You got to go. Like the yeah. food in Montreal is just remarkable. It's it's got that like. It's also because it's a smaller city, so it doesn't. You know, if you go to New York or LA or Chicago, there's a ton of great food, but it's a giant city, right? It, it, it Montreal is you know like more like a New Orleans. It's bigger than Charleston, obviously, but like. It has that more of that feel to it, which somehow makes it taste even better. Yeah, I've I've, I've been to Vancouver, which is obviously a fairly large city, and the food. I've had some amazing meals in Vancouver as well. So, what's the is yeah. the culture in Canada in terms of people ordering in um, different uh, than in the U.S. or is it pretty similar? No, it's it, it's entirely on us at the company and what we prioritize. We we don't even have a sales team in Canada. It's all our accounts in Canada have come to us. Um, with maybe some kind of rare exceptions, um, our sales team is based in the U.S. They're here. They they are um, focused on signing up and working with restaurants in the U.S. 
our platform just happens to work in Canada. We made some tweaks to it so that we can kind of open up there. At some point, we'll make it a bigger priority for us to, to grow in Canada. And then would this work? I mean, do people order in Europe as much with this work or is this more of an American? Thing? No, they do. They absolutely do. Um, and, and at some point in the next couple of years, we will expand to other countries and other continents. Um, I'm, half my family is British. My, my mom is from London and, and I have a fair amount of family in and around London. So I've spent time there and takeout is a way of life. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of, a lot of takeout being done in, in London. Um, and so, um, I think it'd be a great market for us. You know, don't look at the delivery IPO as, as uh, you know, a, a representing, you know, the, the market there. I think it's just more specific to, to the company than it is to take out. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it's interesting in the sense that, you know, and, and for the delivery platforms, you know, they all operate uh, as independent contractors and obviously have fought hard uh, to be able to do that. Um, I, I have this view that maybe they're looking at it the wrong way in the sense of because of the network effect, if you were to say, okay, DoorDash, uh, delivery people, you are now DoorDash employees. On one hand, your costs go up. On the other hand, they're no longer delivering for Uber Eats and everyone else because now they're an employee, not an independent contractor. And if people making these decisions are making it mainly on uh, you know, what restaurants are on there and, and how long it takes, um, you know, the more and more that you consolidate the people who work in the market, the more that all of a sudden, you know, you've got a better platform. It drives people away from the other ones. And eventually, it's hard to see how those platforms even survive. So especially in a world where, and this is also true for ride sharing, the profitability is really challenging. Um, do you think it could work if, if, if they change the model itself? So... I, I would, I would prefer that. In my personal view, is I would prefer that. I think going the W two employer route is is much better for a number of reasons that you kind of talked about. Um, I think it's better for the drivers. The issue is there's actually regulations that make it much more difficult. So there is a company in New York, a delivery company in New York called Homer Logistics, um, and Homer um, doesn't they don't operate anymore. They're, they're basically not around. They their model was to provide delivery for restaurants in New York City. And they W2'd all their, their couriers. All the drivers are W2. And, and they had benefits. I mean, it's really fantastic. The, the issue that they ran into are there laws in New York that govern the way that you schedule, drive, or schedule employees, not just drivers. And if you make uh, a change to someone's schedule, and I, I, it's New York, so I don't have this memorized, but it's something like to, within a two-week time frame of that, that day of employment, there's actually fines associated with it. And so when you look at courier networks and the demand and how they, it comes and you have the spikes during the day and it may, and then you have weather, weather patterns. So, so kind of the extreme cases like a Friday night, which is big for takeout because people are, you know, long week, want to just order in on Friday night. And let's say the weather is bad. And so definitely no one wants to go out. You get a spike. Well, then what Homer used to do is they would go out and they do bonuses and say, we will pay an extra two bucks an hour right. for this time. But they would get fined by the by the state by who said you're changing someone's schedule yeah. day of. And so as long as those regulations are in place, there's none of these delivery companies could actually do it. As someone yeah. who's changed a lot of regulations like that, th those things are changeable. Um, especially, but, but they do have to change. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, what's interesting is there's sort of no great constituency for it, right? Because unions 
want to make the case that all tech platforms are evil because yep. you know this is their best organizing opportunity in decades the platforms want to argue other than homer logistics that uh there could be no way to do this any other than independent contracting uh, and the reality is you know somewhere in between on all of this um, yeah. So we'll see. Yeah, and, and the regulations that were put in place, I, I think they came from a very good place. I, I don't think you know when when they were passed, they just they didn't think about this side effect kind of consequence of you know Homer was trying to do the right thing, and they would pay extra bonuses to employees if they had just uh, spikes in demand and they needed more people on the ground delivering food any given hour, any given day. And so they were do, absolutely doing the right thing. I think everyone would agree they were doing the right thing, but the the various laws were in place that just caused them to, to you know, eventually kind of go out of business. They, they technically were bought, but it, you know, the, the business was just not sustainable. And so that's, that's just one of the challenges. Um, you know, we, we're seeing it right now. Again, the, all the stimulus that's going, going on around the country from the federal government, it, it, I view as a very good thing. I think it was the right thing to do from a personal standpoint. Um, but what we're seeing is there's a shortage of employees at restaurants. Every restaurant we talk to is short employees. They are trying to hire as quickly as they can. And what you have is you have the country re reopening, dine-in reopening in, in just about all major cities, including here in LA, which was kind of slow to, to, to open up dine-in, um, which you know, just matter of fact, I'm not saying it was a right or wrong thing to do, yeah. but, but now it's opening. And so you have hundreds of thousands of restaurants all rushing to hire as much as you can. But then you have a lot of people in their 20s and 30s that haven't been vaccinated yet. And they're saying, I don't want to kind of go and work in that environment and put my health at risk potentially combined with the fact that they're getting the stimulus checks uh, and unemployment checks that, you know, are kind of filling up their bank accounts for right now. And again, I, I'm not saying it is a bad thing. It's just kind of where it is. It's so I can stay home, get my stimulus check, get my unemployment check and be hundred percent safe and healthy versus go and put myself at, at risk. And so it's causing an issue. The, the intent of the stimulus package, which again, I, I, I think was the right thing to do. That was not the intent, but it's having these these side effect consequences, which is making it very challenging. Ah, that's interesting. I haven't heard yeah. that before. Um, last question. So what do the next few years look like for, for Chen Ao? Yeah. So, so later in the year, we're launching a couple more products. Um, one thing that has uh, grown a lot in the past year and where we're investing a lot more time is the Chen Ao app. And so... Uh, what we have found to, to be true is that diners love having one app on their food uh, on their phone where they can open up and order from a number of different restaurants, uh, but they they just don't like the existing model out there. And all the big companies that that you know well, that the Grubhub's, Postmates, uh, Ubers of the world, all have the exact same business model that we talked about earlier. And so restaurants are looking for an alternative. And so the Chano app, we believe, is the best option for both restaurants and diners because we don't charge commissions. We pass across all the customer data to the restaurant. So it's, it's the best option for restaurants. And in doing so, it's the best options for consumers because we can just about guarantee that you're paying the lowest menu prices because the menu prices haven't been inflated and we're not layering in all these kind of crazy fees that you see when you open up you know, in any of these other apps. And so because that's the case, Diners have been downloading the Chanow app, especially in cities like New York and others, more and more over the past year. And so we love it, obviously, and we're going to be investing more and more into the Chanow app. So we, we, we are bringing on more product people, more marketers and more people to, to build out the Chanow app. And you'll see that become a much bigger part of our business from here on out. Very cool. All right. I will yeah. download it after the podcast. Uh, Chris Webb, thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thanks for having me.